Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your love and your grace and your mercy and, Lord, just all of, all of the abundance that you shower us with above and be asked what we can even think. And so, Lord, we, we love you today. We appreciate you. We are thankful and we're excited to be your children. And so, Lord, thanks for just being our good, good Father. And we pray today that our time together in your word would be worthy of what would bring glory and honor to you. And so please have your way with us now and guide us and lead us in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn, if you would, to Daniel chapter 5. As you're turning there, and again, if you're visiting, we have a habit. Uh, we teach chapter by chapter, line by line, through the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation. The way we sort of do it is we do a New Testament chunk and then an Old Testament chunk, and we kind of march both of them through, uh, and we find ourselves today in Daniel chapter 5. And so, um, it's a great chapter. Everybody in Daniel chapter 5? Awesome. Put your finger there. Turn back to the left. To Isaiah chapter 44. So I want to read this part at the beginning um, to sort of set the stage for the story that we're about to read. Some of you are familiar with this story. We're going to read about Belshazzar's feast in Daniel chapter 5. Some of you are familiar with that story, some of you aren't. By the end of today, hopefully you'll all be familiar with that story. And so, uh, but what's interesting about this is approximately 200 years before the events of Daniel chapter 5, Isaiah wrote these words in uh, starting at chapter 44, starting in verse 28. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall perform all my pleasure, saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built, and to the temple, your foundation shall be laid. Chapter 45, thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have held, to subdue nations before him and loose the armor of kings, to open before him the double doors so that the gates will not be shut. I will go before you and make the crooked places straight. I will break the, in pieces the gates of bronze and cut the bars of iron. I will give you treasures of darkness and hidden, se- hidden riches of secret places that you may know that I, the Lord, who call you by your name, am the God of Israel. Now you say, all right, whatever. Cyrus hadn't been born yet. And Cyrus is uh, the king of Persia, the Medes and Persians, Uh, who are going to conquer Babylon at the end of chapter 5 that we read about tonight, today. And so what happened is, Isaiah wrote these words speaking, mentioning Cyrus by name 200 years before his existence. Now, I point that out just to tell you that Bible scholars, right, if you, it doesn't take a very long Google search to tell you, Bible scholars use uh, examples like this to prove that Isaiah did not write all of the book of Isaiah. 
Isaiah, they would say, wrote part of the book of Isaiah, like the first part, but not the second part, because how would he know that there was going to be a guy, Cyrus, 200 years later? Well, we would say Isaiah was a what? Prophet. Is it okay if a prophet knows something 200 years before it's going to happen? Are we okay with that? So again, we have yet another example, one of many, one of many, 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 that if we let the scripture stand on its own, right, and if we believe that God is God, and we worship a God that we don't have to, that, you know, that is able to do miraculous things, then we're okay saying that uh, Isaiah called out Cyrus by name. Is that fair? So uh, that's sort of the preamble, if you will. Now, the events that we're going to talk about today in uh, chapter 5 of Daniel occurred around at, at uh, well, it's actually at 539 B.C. This is the last night, if you will, of the Babylonian Empire, as we know it historically. This would have been about 66 years after the first captivity of 605 B.C. when Daniel was carried off. Now, for background, okay, uh, the nation of Israel came out of Egypt, right? Went through the times of the, settled in the promised land after 40 years, went through the times of the judges, and then went through the times of the kings, and then there was King David, and after him was King Solomon, and after him was King Rehoboam, and during the time of Rehoboam, the nation was split into the northern kingdom known thereafter as Israel, and the southern kingdom known thereafter as Judah, and fast forward a few generations, uh, the nation fell into moral decay. The nation fell into moral decay. It's important to study history, like what happens in the past when a nation goes through moral decay and rejects God, right? That might be relevant. So uh, in the northern kingdom of Israel, after lots of moral decay, they were a little quicker on that uh, slippery slope than the southern kingdom. They were carried off by the Assyrian Empire in 722 B.C., uh, the southern kingdom of Judah got a front row seat for that and yet failed to really fully repent and uh, restore their ways and follow the Lord. So they had some good kings, some bad kings, and, and kind of trickled uh, off a little bit. And they were finally conquered by the Babylonians. Now the Babylonians came in three waves, first in 605 B.C., then in 597 B.C., and finally in 586 B.C. I tell you all that to tell you, Daniel was carried off in 605 in the first wave of this. So by this time... He was probably, he was likely a teenager, probably a young teenager when he was carried off. This is about 66 years later, so uh, he's probably in his early 80s by this time that we're reading about today. Now we're going to also read that Belshazzar is listed as the king. Look at verse 1. Belshazzar the king, okay? Belshazzar is listed as the king. Now again, Bible scholars or let's just Bible critics. We'll just call them Bible critics, okay? Bible critics like to point out the fact, there it is, uh, another error in the Bible because Belshazzar was not the king during this time. There was a guy by the name of Nabonidus, which was actually the son-in-law of Nebuchadnezzar. He was king. But, and so for the longest time, nobody really knew about it. There was no extra biblical records of anybody named Belshazzar. And so obviously the Bible is in error. And uh, until 1854, um, there was an archaeologic find that's now referred to as the Nabonidus Cylinder, which describes Nabonidus and lo and behold, his son Belshazzar. Archaeology is a good friend of the scriptures. 
Archaeology is a very good friend of the scriptures, and it's, and it's, a, and it's the great naysayer of the naysayers, right? And so, um, so now we know, yes, there's this guy, Nabonidus. He was the king, uh, but, um, Nebuchadnezzar's son-in-law, okay? So track, you've got to track the uh, family lines here, okay? And as some of you know, I have difficulty tracking family lines, right? I, it's because I count my own kids, right? That's about all I can do. And so uh, Nebuchadnezzar had a daughter. We're going to read about her in a minute. She's going to be the, the, identified as the queen, actually the queen mother. And uh, that was Nebuchadnezzar's daughter. She married a guy named Nabonidus, and they had a son named Belshazzar. Now, Nabonidus, uh, it was a big empire, right? And at the time of this writing, Nabonidus was actually, uh, historians have kind of have figured out, he was in um, Arabia at the time. And so these words kings, you've got to keep in mind, we think of a single king over a single empire, Right? Well, in the book of Acts, right, during the time of Paul's inquisition, we read about uh, King Agrippa, right? Well, who was the king of the Roman Empire? Caesar, right? And so uh, there are lots of kings, but identified as kings. And we'll even read about it again uh, at the end. I told you Cyrus is king of the Medes and Persians, and Darius is going to become, is also called the king. We'll get to that at the end. Okay, so, everybody got all the pieces put together? Who's the king? Who's the king? Nabonidus. But his son, Belshazzar, is sort of left in charge, right? Now, any correlation to leaving your son in charge is purely coincidental as we read the events of chapter 5, Okay? Belshazzar, made a, the king, made a great feast for a thousand of his lords, and he drank wine in the presence of the thousands. So here's the scene. It's a drunken party, okay? This is not just like a little wine with dinner. This is a thousand of your best friends, your closest associates, your political allies, right? Gathered around, getting drunk. Now, that's its own thing, right, which we would discourage, But furthermore, you have to understand the setting. The setting is the Medes and Persians have laid siege to the city of Babylon. So as verse 1 is playing out, the enemy nations have us surrounded. Would that be the time you'd sit around and get drunk? Probably not. Except, you know, the city walls of Babylon were 22 feet thick, 90 feet high, and 17 miles long. They used to have chariot races around the top of them because they were wide enough. 22 feet thick, 90 feet high, 17 miles long, surrounded the city. So what do you do? You got a wall like that. Medes and Persians, who cares? Right? Persian Shmersians, we're going to get drunk. Right? Because we've got a killer wall. Because we can put our security in our wall, right? Anybody read enough Bible to know where this is going? Right? Okay. So, and yet what a picture of today's world, right? We put our security in things like the Babylonian wall. All the while, we tolerate moral decay, right? And uh, 
usually that story doesn't end well. So I believe this is a classic picture of today's world, today's culture, frankly, and uh, we need to be very careful to put our security in secure things. And walls, riches, money, uh, robes of purple, and gold necklaces don't bring us security. Okay? So verse 2. While he tasted the wine, Belshazzar gave the command to bring the gold and silver vessels which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple which had been in Jerusalem, that the king and his lords, his wives, his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken from the temple of the house of God which had been in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze and iron, wood and stone. So Belshazzar and his thousand friends sitting around getting drunk. Guess what happened? They ran out of cups. Right? Did they run out of cups? Is that why we're going to grab these cups, these vessels? Not because they ran out, but because, keep in mind, those, what do those vessels represent? Those, represent? those were furnishings in the temple of Jehovah God. Right? And when I have, the, if I'm a Babylonian king, and I can drink to the point of drunkenness out of Jehovah's drinking vessels, what am I declaring? My kingdom beat your kingdom, nana nana nana. Nana nana nana, it's a song that we, from an early age, for, forbade in our home. But it especially doesn't work when you're singing it to God. Okay? So literally, this is picture the scene. The Medes and Persians are surrounding us. We don't care because we got this great wall. And by the way, we've conquered everybody else so far. For example, the God of the Jews. We destroyed their temple. We leveled it. And we took their drinking vessels. And by the way, let's get drunk with their drinking vessels. And along the way, we will praise the gods of gold and silver and bronze and iron and wood and stone who have, we've proven are superior to the God of the Jews. How's this going to go? Not well. Not well. You know, you think about it through the scripture. When David killed Goliath, right? Goliath is coming out and he's, you know, he's, he's mocking the, the Jewish people and all of that. When David comes up and he hears about this as a young teenager, what really gets David, if you go back and read the text, what really gets David is that Goliath was mocking this, he calls him this uncircumcised Philistine. He was mocking God. You don't mock God. And in our society today, you don't mock God. It doesn't go well. And so if that's a warning, um, I mean, we're in church, it's a friendly audience, right? I think so. Um, you don't mock God. We don't mock God. It never goes well. So verse 5. In the same hour, the fingers of a man's hand appeared and wrote opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace, and the king saw the part of the hand that wrote. Put yourself in the king's mind right now. You're either very drunk and you just saw this hand 
come out of nowhere and write something on the wall opposite of where you're sitting or something kind of creepy is going on, right? We've never seen anything like this before, he would probably say, right? And it would be a bit scary. Now, God can speak however he wants. God can speak however he wants. God spoke through a donkey, speaking to Balaam. In this, in this case, God is choosing a pretty dramatic uh, means of speaking to Belshazzar. Verse 6, then the king's countenance changed, I imagine. And his thoughts troubled him, so that the joints of his hips were loosened and his knees knocked against each other. Now, prior to this, Belshazzar was like super confident. We might even say overconfident right? And now he's super scared, like we might say over scared. And I don't know how this works anatomically, right? But I've read enough Bible and I've read enough anatomy to know that they don't disagree with each other. And so there's got to be something, right? That somebody could be so scared that literally his, his joints are loosened and his knees kind of knocked together. Probably not just shivering, right? Probably something real. This guy's scared. He's gone from super confident now to super scared. You ever done that? It happens. But notice he does this so quickly. Notice, again, if I could point this out, when we place our confidence, when we place our security in things that aren't secure, then when those things crash, we are left really with no foundation. And let me just say this. We all go through those in, in you know, even as Christians, right, in, in our journey with the Lord, in our fellowship with the Lord, in small ways we sort of do that at times. We might place a little too much confidence in this thing that can crumble, and maybe it does, and, and, you know, our knees don't necessarily knock together, but, you know, we learn a lesson. But on a broader scale, there are people that place their lives in things that are unstable, and when they do crash, it's, it can be catastrophic. Can I tell us as Christians, that's a great time to have compassion. Can I tell us as Christians, that's a horrible time to say, told you so. Too bad, so sad for you. And as Christians, my, my heart just breaks a little bit, honestly, for our tendency to do that a little bit too much. Is that fair? Is that a gracious exhortation? When, you're, when you encounter people that crash because they put security in things that you know they shouldn't have put security in, and you knew it all along, and you saw it coming, and it in fact happens, that's a great time for compassion. So much so that I think we have an opportunity, maybe even more than we might have otherwise, to really reach out to them. I saw a guy this past week. He, um, he was uh, involved in some really stupid behavior. And he knew it. I knew it. And he got an injury as a result of it. And so... I was seeing him as a part of that injury. And he was describing it to me, and he's describing what happened, and he said, oh, it's really stupid. And he was kind of expecting, I think he was expecting uh, 
what Lever Beaver, Leave it to Beaver used to say, like a talking to. What, what, uh, he had a word for it. But anyway, he, he kind of expected the talk, right? And I looked at him. I mean, all you could, I mean his, he was a mess. He was a mess. And, like, the Lord gave me this sort of soft spot for this guy. I felt genuinely sorry for him. I didn't have to, like, drum it up in myself. I really felt sorry for him. And the guy was, like, pleasantly surprised that he didn't get the talk from me right? Maybe that speaks more to what my reputation would have been otherwise. I don't know. But the point is, when that happens, we as Christians have opportunities. And the world right now is trusting in a lot of insecure things, if they're trusting in anything other than the Lord. So this guy, Belshazzar, he is flipped out. He's gone from super confident to super flipped out. Can I tell us as Christians, I was thinking about this. Is there anything, and maybe there is, I'm not saying that, you know, I'm so stable, right? Is there anything that would make you that afraid? Anything? Think about it now. If you had to face death today. Would your knees knock together? I mean, you'll have some, you'd probably have some anxiety or some... I mean, there were, I, I don't know what the range of emotions might be. But as Christians, if we have a biblical understanding of life and death, if we know that death is just... If we really know this and embrace this and understand this and get our head around this, that when we pass from this life to the next, we are in the hands of God, we will see him as he is, Scripture tells us, we are going to be transformed. There are, earthly, there are terrestrial bodies and there are celestial bodies. We're going to be transformed and, and all of that. We're going to be in the presence of God. And if we really understand that, I understand that there's probably some anxiety about the process or, you know, the unknown or all of that. I get all of that. But I have to believe that there's not so much anxiety that our knees would knock together and our joints would become loose. I have to think that the only way you can have that kind of anxiety is to put your trust in uncertain things. Some of you heard me say this before. Philippians chapter, chapter 4. Starting in verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, please catch this, the peace of God which surpasses all understanding. I believe God is capable of giving us a peace that makes no sense, objectively. The peace of God which passes all understanding will guard your hearts, that's your emotions, and your minds, that's your thoughts, through Christ Jesus. Some of you heard the story. I remember uh, almost three years ago now, uh, the day that my dad drove himself to the ER, thinking he had a stomach bug. And when he got there, they said, no, you don't have a stomach bug, you've got a pancreatic mass, and it's a big one. And pretty much, you're going to die. Okay? He woke up that morning not feeling well drove himself to the hospital, right? He had a, that was a big day, right? That was a big day. 
And so he lived up in Indianapolis. You know, I drove up there that evening, sat at the foot of the bed, and honestly, I don't think he was faking. Do you fake at a moment like that? What do you do at a moment like that? You really sort of lay it all out. You, that's when you know who you are. He literally died two weeks to the day after that day. But he looks at me. This, it's, it's sweet and it's sad and it's funny all at once. I said, you okay with this? And he knew the Lord. He was a sweet believer. And if you don't know, I'm a doctor. So that's part of the story. He, uh, I said, you okay with this? He's like, man, I'm ready to be with the Lord. I've had a good long life. God's been good to me. All that stuff. I'm super, I'm, I'm super thankful. I'm, I've got no, no anything about dying. And I've often thought, when that happens to me, how will I look death in the eye? And my dad, he's got his flat spots, just, or he had his flat spots, just like we all do, right? But I knew at that moment, he was given by God a supernatural peace that surpasses understanding. Here's the funny part. He says, yep, I want to be with the Lord. But he said, you know, I've had friends that had pancreatic cancer. It's pretty painful. I'm a little nervous about the process. He said, I've heard about these morphine pumps. Can you hook me up with one of those? <laughs> That's all he cared about. Was that he gets his morphine pump. I said, we'll take care of it. Right? And lo and behold, honestly, that was his last prayer, that the process would be smooth and relatively quick. He didn't want to hang around and, you know, die a slow, miserable death. And, the, and even the doctors told me, yep, we'll send him home, you know, call hospice when it's ready, you know, when the time comes, you'll know when the time comes, blah, 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 blah. I expect him to live about six to eight months, right? He went in on a Thursday, they did all the testing and came to that conclusion in a week, so he released from the hospital the following Thursday, and the Thursday after that he was dead. His last prayer was answered. And he had the peace that passes understanding. Belshazzar, think about this now, the guy left in charge of the most powerful, well, what he thought was the most powerful kingdom in the world, right? The kingdom that thumped the God of the Jews so much so we can mock him. That guy had less to stand on than some simple 87-year-old guy in Indianapolis that probably won't make the pages of history. That could be us, right? Might not make the pages of history. I hope we don't make them like this, <laughs> right? If your alternative, if being famous means you get yourself in Daniel chapter 5, I'd choose to be anonymous, right? But he goes from being super confident to super terrified. And what's available to us as an alternative is the peace that passes understanding. And it all boils down to what we put our trust in or who we put our trust in. And his name is Jesus.
So the king, he's flipped out. He needs an answer. He's got to figure out what this writing is on the wall. So the king cried aloud, verse 7, to bring in the astrologers, the Chaldeans, and the soothsayers. The king spoke, saying to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and tells me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck, and he shall be third ruler in the kingdom. Now all the king's wise men came, but they could not read the writing. Imagine that. They couldn't read the writing or make known to the king its interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was now greatly troubled, and his countenance was changed again, and his lords were astonished. Now, I love this, right? You know what we're doing today? We're reading the same book, different chapter, right? What do we read uh, last week? Nebuchadnezzar had a dream, right? Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. It greatly troubled him. You know who he asked? Asked the magicians, the astrologers, the Chaldeans, the soothsayers. You know what they, you know what they did? Nothing. Well, that was a fluke. That was Daniel chapter 4. If you've been with us, if you're visiting, I'm sorry, I'm putting you through this. Uh, Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. And you know what he did? He gave command to call the magicians, the astrologers, the sorcerers, the Chaldeans to tell him his dreams. And they came in. Guess what? Nobody could, right? Third time's a charm. Maybe Belshazzar is going to hit a nerve here. But nope. Go figure. The astrologers, the soothsayers, the Chaldeans, the wise men, none of them can interpret this handwriting on the wall, right? These guys have had three chances. They still come up with the same answer. And the king, I mean, like the king is going to keep asking these guys the same thing right? These guys are like tenured professors. They, have no, they don't have to get the right answer, right? They, they keep their job no matter what, right? And so the king just keeps coming to him, keeps coming to him, keeps coming to him, and now this is the third time. And what he's offering, notice what he's offering. This is also a little bit of a, of a kind of enlightening point. Whoever can come up with this answer is going to have a, is going to be clothed with purple, He's going to have a chain of gold around his neck, and he's going to be the third, in the ruler, third ruler in the kingdom. And again, he can, this also supports what I said historically at the beginning. He's only got a third to give away, right? Because uh, his father, Nabonidus, is the first ruler. He's now the second, and he's going to offer third position, right? He can't offer second position. He's, uh, he's going to offer third position. And so... Uh, that's what's going to happen to the guy that can interpret the dream. The paradox is the guy that can interpret the dream doesn't care about that stuff. You ever notice that? When the world places their trust and their security and their whole life, when they wrap their life around stuff that, frankly, is insecure, then those of us who wrap our lives around other things, they... They don't get that we don't care about that stuff like they do. And so Belshazzar, he doesn't get it. He doesn't get it. So verse 8, he then tells, you know, they come and they can't do it for the third time. And now he's terrified and his countenance has changed again. And then verse 10, the queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came to the banquet hall. The queen spoke, saying, O king, live forever. Do not let your thoughts trouble you. 
nor let your countenance change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy God. And in his days, and in the days, I'm sorry, in the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father, the king, made him chief of the magicians, astrologers, Chaldeans, and soothsayers. And so this is, this brings to light some important pieces of the story. So Queen here, again, like we talked about, king can have a variety of interpretations. Queen here is probably not Belshazzar's wife, but Belshazzar's mother. She would have therefore been Nebuchadnezzar's daughter. She somehow knows about Daniel. She somehow seems to be a believer, at least enough to know and respect the character of Daniel. She refers to Nebuchadnezzar as your father. Again, this is not like a direct father. There's the, the, the Hebrew word father means basically ancestor. So it could be, you know, like we talk about the God of your fathers. That's all your ancestors. Um, so Nebuchadnezzar was his grandfather. But notice one thing. How many, how many of Belshazzar's associates are in this room? Verse 1, a thousand. Daniel is not in the top thousand because he's not here. And even if you will, the, queen's, the king's mother, the queen, says she came to the banquet hall. So there's a good chance she wasn't there either. You ever notice sometimes that they don't invite you to their parties? Right? That's okay. Sometimes they don't invite you. To, don't force your way into them, by the way, if, if you want my advice on that. Daniel's not in the top thousand of Belshazzar's associates. Belshazzar should have learned from history. Daniel has been marginalized despite all he did for Nebuchadnezzar. Christians today, many, in many situations, are being marginalized. Can I tell you this? That's okay. I don't want to be at this party. Nothing good happens at this party. I'm happy to be exempt from it. If they want to call me a teetotaler, or if they want to say I'm too good for that, I'm going to let them. I'm going to try not to um, be pompous about it, but I'm happy to not be at this party. Can I say this? And I think this is important for us as Christians. There's a, uh, there's a certain ideology that's... that's um, it's pretty popular right now. And again, I don't want to, I want to be careful, right? I know we have a lot of church backgrounds and all that kind of thing, right? Some of you are saying, oh, that's what he says right before something good comes out, right? <laughs> I know we have a lot of backgrounds. There's a certain ideology that says we need to be culturally relevant in order to reach this generation. Have you ever heard that? Or something that goes something like that. We need to be culturally relevant to reach this generation, right? Now, here's where I think we could learn a lesson from Daniel. Was Daniel a pretty godly guy, by the way? Would we say, yeah, I would love to be as faithful to the end as Daniel was. I'd like to be that guy, right? What was Daniel's example? Daniel was excluded from the thousand-person party, right? Right? But when the time came 
they knew who to call. Right? They knew who to call. Can I suggest if you're drowning, do you try to grab another drowning person to help you out? Or do you try to grab somebody that's on the shore at a different place than you're at? Does that make sense? I'm all about being culturally relevant. I don't want to be so culturally irrelevant that, um, I don't know. Maybe I do. (laughs) I don't want to be pompous. I want to have compassion because they are drowning. They are drowning. They are drowning. And we need to have be like Jesus, who is described many times as moved with compassion. Whenever you read the word moved in the context of Jesus, the next two words are with compassion every time. But the reality is, we live in a, dr- in a drowning world. And the reality is, there's, you know, we could talk about you know, where our society is today and where it would have been at such and such point of history. The truth is, society and individuals, apart from the Lord, have always been drowning. Back to this party, even. Right? But as the world drowns, Let me suggest it might be a better alternative. Rather than focusing on trying to be culturally relevant, culturally relevant and hip and, you know, all of that, maybe just live your life with enough honor and enough integrity that when they're drowning, they look to you as a guy on the shore who's lived a life that maybe they didn't understand, they thought it was kind of weird, they thought you were one of them. But at some point in life, they'll recognize that you're not drowning as you put your trust in Jesus. And again, it presents for us a fantastic opportunity to throw them a life preserver. Not to yell at them and watch them drown and say, I told you so, but to throw them a life preserver. And to make sure. And and while I'm there, while I'm on this little rant, make sure that the life preserver you throw them is not Christianity or this church or my ideology or my doctrine or my book or my psychology or anything else. What is the life preserver church that I should throw them? What's his name? Jesus Christ. The way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. Period. Period. So when they drown, we don't yell at them. We don't say, I told you so. We don't point our fingers. We don't do any of that. We're moved with compassion, and we throw them the life preserver, and his name is Jesus Christ. And the reality is, this guy's going down. Verse 12. Inasmuch as an excellent spirit, knowledge, understanding, interpreting dreams, solving riddles, and explaining enigmas were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belshazzar, now let Daniel be called, and he will give you the interpretation. So the queen says, 
call this guy in. And by the way, the queen calls, this, calls him Daniel. We've talked about it over the last several weeks. Daniel was his Hebrew name, uh, referencing that he trusted in the Lord. Belteshazzar was his, was his Babylonian name that they gave him when they were trying to indoctrinate him there in chapter 1. But he has maintained enough honor and integrity that the queen refers to him as Daniel, whom the king happened to name Belteshazzar. Verse 13. Then Daniel was brought in before the king, and the king spoke and said to Daniel, Are you that Daniel who is one of the captives of Judah, from Judah, whom my father the king brought from Judah? I have heard of you, that the Spirit of God is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. So Belshazzar appears to have never even met Daniel. Is that weird? If we've read, if you've, if you've been with us enough, that we've read through chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. Daniel's the only guy that can interpret the dream. And at the end of that interpretation, Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face, prostrate before Daniel, and commanded that they should present an offering and incense to him. Then the king answered Daniel and said, Truly your God is the God of gods, the Lord of kings, the revealer of secrets. Then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief administrator <coughs> over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel would have been well known, and the same thing happened, by the way, in chapter uh, 4. Daniel would have been well known in all of the Babylonian government. But Belshazzar doesn't care. Belshazzar chooses not to recall that part of history. We could learn a lot from history. Belshazzar could have learned a lot from history. But he appears to have, uh, he says, hey, are you the Daniel that was one of the captives from, from Judah? So he's heard about him, but he didn't care. Now the wise men, verse 15, the astrologers have been brought in before me that they should read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not give the interpretation of the thing. I have heard of, and I have heard of you, that you can give interpretations and explain enigmas. Now if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be third ruler in the kingdom. So Belshazzar is giving him this, this uh, offer again. As Christians, maybe we're people that don't fully put our trust in those things that Belshazzar trusts in. But we should also take that maybe one step further and not be baited by those things that Belshazzar trusts in, right? Belshazzar thinks that he's going to reward Daniel by giving him uh, the robe, the clothes of purple, and a chain of gold, and a third ruler in the kingdom. Daniel doesn't really care about that stuff. This probably would have been insulting to Daniel, but he holds this cool, right? He's just motivated to do the right thing. Then, king, then Daniel, verse 21, answered and said before the king, Let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Yet I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. Now, notice this as we read from 18 down to 21. We said Daniel's not culturally relevant, right? Like he's not trying to uh, sort of swim with drowning Belshazzar. Notice this. And Daniel's not forced himself into the crowd of a thousand people, right? 
But once Daniel is invited into that place, he lets it all hang out. And I think, again, again, we've got to navigate this. We've got to navigate this world, right? I think there are times where we said last week when Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar, if you weren't here last week, Nebuchadnezzar, I think, got saved in chapter 4. He got humbled. He was proud. He got warned. He remained proud. He got way humbled. And then he repented. And I believe, I believe we'll see him in heaven. That's just my opinion. But Nebuchadnezzar writes a chapter in the Bible. Daniel chapter 4. It's in first person. And we said last week, everybody has a testimony of what God has done in our lives. Right? And we all have a platform. Nebuchadnezzar had a platform. Right? He was king. So it would make sense for him to tell the whole world his story, which he did. Now, we're not necessarily kings, and we don't necessarily have that kind of platform, but we all have a platform. And you all have a different platform than I have, and I have a different platform than you have. And God somehow orchestrates that way better than we do, by the way, when we try. And I've tried enough in my life that I know how badly I can butcher it that I, I've decided a while back to just let God work it out. And God gives us platforms. Daniel was not, in, I'm sure, he wasn't even invited, I doubt, to this thousand-person drunken fiasco. But when he is invited, and he doesn't make a big deal about it, he doesn't push his way into it, but when he is invited, he's going to speak the truth. And if you're invited into sort of a conversation or uh, you have opportunity to throw, a, throw the Jesus life preserver to somebody, right? That's an opportunity. Not to say I told you so, not to any of that, but to speak the truth boldly and unashamedly. So this is what Daniel says. Verse 18, O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father a kingdom and majesty, glory, and honor. By the way, Nebuchadnezzar wasn't all that because he was awesome. Nebuchadnezzar was Nebuchadnezzar because God gave him majesty and honor and glory. And because of the majesty that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whomever he wished, he executed. All right. That's majesty. Whomever he wished, he kept alive. Whomever he wished, he set up. And whomever he wished, he put down. But when his heart was lifted up, and again, we read this last week, and his spirit was hardened in pride, he was deposed from his kingly throne, and they took his glory from him. Then he was driven from the sons of men. His heart was made like the beasts, and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. They fed him with grass like oxen, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till he knew that the Most High God rules in the kingdom of men and appoints it over it whomever he chooses. So Daniel has a moment now. He has a testimony, and he has a platform. And he was silent until this time, but now he speaks. Now he takes this moment. He takes this opportunity to recall all the events of chapter 4, and he, know, and he points out the fact that 
Nebuchadnezzar was full of pride and God humbled him. We talked about last week. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Mentioned in James chapter 4 verse 6 and 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 5. I've said this before. If God repeats himself, it's for emphasis, right? Sometimes I repeat myself. It's sometimes for emphasis and sometimes that I forgot what I said, right? But if God repeats himself, it's for emphasis. James 4, verse 6, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. 1 Peter 5, verse 5, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And again, in the great tug of war of life, we want God on our side, fighting between good and evil. And the key to that fight, the key to God being on our side, is humility. And so Daniel tells Belshazzar, your grandfather, he got it right. He, he learned the hard way that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble, and he chose to follow the Lord. Verse 22, but you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, although you knew all this, and you have lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven. They have brought the vessels of his house before you, and you and your lords and your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them, and you have praised the gods of silver and gold, bronze and iron, wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know, and the God who holds your breath in his hand. By the way, that's all of us. The God who holds your breath in his hand and owns all your ways, you have not glorified. Then the fingers of the hand were sent from him, and this writing was written. So, Nebuchadnezzar humbled himself, but you, he says, even though you knew all this, did not humble yourself. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 says, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to the truth. God made this known to Belshazzar. God warns his children. God warns those who reject him. And God was warning Belshazzar, even through the example of his grandfather, that he would have grown up knowing. And notice also here it says, I want to just emphasize this, God who holds your breath in his hand and owns all your ways. That is true of every single human being. God owns our ways. We might think we own our ways, and even we talk about surrendering our life to the Lord, right? It's really surrendering our will to the Lord because he owns our life, right? He's in control of everything. He holds our breath in his hand and he owns all of our ways. We need to surrender our will to him. So then the writing. And this is the inscription that was written. Many, many tickle you, you parson. Anybody know what that means? Yes. Neither did Belshazzar. Yeah, yeah, you got it. Well, he didn't have Google. So, many. So these were, these were literal Arabic words, okay? These were literal Arabic words on the wall, but the connection and the meaning of the words were what were what were confusing. So the word many, M-E-N-E, means number. The word tekel, T-E-K-E-L, means weight. Did I say these are in Aramaic? These are in Aramaic. And Eupharsin is from the word peres, meaning division. So he's got the words number, weight, and division. That's kind of weird. So he says this in the interpretation of each word. Many. God has numbered your kingdom and it's finished. Tekel. You've been weighed in the balances 
and found wanting. You've been judged and you didn't come out on the right side of the scale. Perez, your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. So, Belshazzar's days are numbered. They're actually, the number is actually zero. And uh, his kingdom is going to be divided, given to the Medes and Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command, and they clothed Daniel with purple and put a chain of gold on his neck, around his neck and made a proclamation concerning him that he should be third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, king of the Chalde- Belshazzar, king of the Chaldeans, was slain. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. And so again, um, Daniel gets great gifts and power, stuff he doesn't care about. Belshazzar uh, fulfills the prophecy that was given to him. And Darius the Mede, who received the kingdom, uh, of, receives the kingdom of Babylon. Again, Darius was probably... Um, uh, sort of a co-ruler with Cyrus, who was prophesied uh, by Isaiah. And as you read through the rest of the, of the history, there's some mention of Darius throughout Daniel, but also through the rest of the Medo-Persian history, uh, Cyrus is the one that you may recall issues the proclamation for the Jews to go back and restore and rebuild Jerusalem. So, Just like last week we read about Nebuchadnezzar, same thing about this week except with a different conclusion. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Mocking God is a dangerous practice and should be a warning for us today. And I believe with all my heart, our best defense is to obey God according to his word, by the power of his Holy Spirit, live lives of holiness and integrity, not pompous religion, Please, 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 not pompous religion. Because what's going to happen, by the way, okay, so let's say all, they're all going down in immorality, and we choose the alternative, which is pompous religion in our self-sufficiency. What are we going to do? We're going to go down with them, just with a different flavor, right? And so we need to be dependent upon the Lord, not self-sufficient, leaning on Him, following Him according to the Scripture, Right? And when we have those opportunities, when we have those platforms, we throw the life vest in his name is Jesus. And we do it with great compassion. And, um, and through all that, God is glorified. Perfect love casts out fear. Perfect love casts out fear. The peace of God surpasses all understanding. We as Christians, knowing Jesus, should never, ever have to face a situation where our knees knock together because we're so afraid. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind, right? And so there is that peace that's available. Peace is is part of the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And he gives that to those who ask. So again, as we navigate the Christian life, we want to follow him, we want to serve him, and we also want him to change who we are. We want him to mold us and shape us, just like any relationship, right? Just like any relationship, we want to be molded and changed by God. Conformed into his image, Romans tells us, right? That's who we want to be. So let's be those people.
And along the way, we'll have an opportunity to share that love with others. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you that you're so good, you're so in control, you're so gracious, you warn your people even who reject you, and you give us opportunities to share your love with a world that's hungry. So Lord, help us to be those people. Help us to be like Daniel, compassionate and yet full of truth. And help us to live lives that bring glory and honor to you. In Jesus' name, amen.